Greetings, 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 and salutations, best and brightest. I am Jay Severin. This is your Invasion of the Giant Pod Pundit, and this is episode 49, 49, Master Debaters 2, Back to the Future. Excelsior! of the giant pod pundit with Jay Severin. So, let's consider last night, the second debate, for a moment, mix it in with everything, and consider where we are. Where, where does this leave us? My first point is, if we were today to ask Democrats, and I'm sure honest, superior pollsters conducting private surveys, like Doug Schoen and Mark Penn, they are asking today. They are asking Democrats, and the pity is we won't see those polls. Those are not published. They are done for private uh, entities that need and want to know these things and are willing to pay millions of dollars to know because knowing the answer of a real poll gives you the opportunity to bank million, multi-million dollar decisions on public opinion, kind of like the market. Public opinion is a market, a stock market in and of itself. More about polls shortly. So today, we would ask Democrats, who is your front runner? And I would say that eight to nine out of 10 would say Biden but not with much conviction. Hmm? I would return to my siege theory of musical chairs, of deadly, poisonous, mortal, mortal musical chairs being played by the Democrats right now in the primary. How many of them are there and how many seats are there on which to sit, as we know from knowing the game from children? Unless, of course, you are a child of the millennials, in which case I doubt that you ever played musical chairs because there is a winner and a loser, (laughs) as in life. God forbid that life, the truth, should actually intrude on the bullshit that we teach children these days. Everyone is the same. Everyone is equal. All outcomes are equal. Yeah, okay. Anyway, let's look at the four slash five seat theory again very quickly, I promise, and that is the music is playing. The music will stop over a course of time, and when it stops, at this point, Going forward, as of today, as of Thursday, August 1st, as of the day after the second Democrat debate from last night, I'd say that we're looking at four, maybe five seats, four, maybe five chairs. Yes? And this will become clearer, and you will see it more in the media when they have time to think about it, which they need, and I don't. We don't. And that is the four seats are certainly Biden, in no particular order, 
Biden, Warren, Sanders, and you get three there, right? Biden, Warren, Sanders. Then you have to start to reach just a little bit. Maybe there are three seats. Maybe there are four. What about Cory Booker? What about Kamala Harris? And suddenly, what about Tulsi Gabbard? But right now, Democrats are trying to decide. I could see it from the media and the coverage. They're trying to decide who won last night. Who did win last night? Fair question. Important question. Vital question. Answer is, we had that Q&A in advance. We had that nailed down. Biden was either the big winner or absolutely automatically the big loser. Biden was not the big loser. I know that many of us, I mean, I read all of your tweets and respond to most of them. I, I know that many of us believe that Biden didn't do that well. And in a vacuum, I'd say that's, that, that is so. But it's not in a vacuum. It's compared to who? Don't forget, all of American politics is based on a template which really never changes. That template is the same schematic as the oldest vaudeville joke in the world. Good morning, Joe. Say, how's your wife? Bill responds, compared to who? Okay. That's politics. Compared to what? Compared to who? Joe Biden went in as the leader last night. He emerged as the leader. Perhaps he didn't, you know, mystify, hypnotize people with his greatness in debate, and I admit he did not. But neither did he get killed. So, who is the Democrat leader following these two debates? Particularly last night's in which he had a chance to compete the answer is joe biden but again he did not settle last night the notion of do we go with the establishment figure biden so we can have the highest chance of winning of beating trump or do we say you know what screw it we're going to go for what we believe in we're going to go for some radical new ideas. And again, the problem, as I've shared with you, is that the private polls that I have been lucky enough to see have told me consistently, they say consistently, that when Democrat voters, Democrat voters are asked, what is the most important thing to you in the primary in a candidate? Number one by 20 to 30 points consistently is someone who can beat Trump. The last placed answer, often 40 to 50 points behind, is fresh new ideas for the party. They don't give a shit about fresh new ideas. They want to beat Trump, and they are willing to, uh, I tell you the way I read the numbers, they're willing, Democrats are willing to make any sacrifice in the world. Rush Limbaugh, my buddy Rush could announce his uh, candidacy tonight and it would be over. The Democrats would draft him because all they want to do, I'm being a little bit extreme here, 
on behalf of my mentor hero friend. But you get what I'm saying. So right now, the correct answer to, okay, where does Lecevis, who is ahead? The answer is Joe Biden. But not by much, right? Not very convincingly, right? So as we get into this thing and there are four to five seats, when the music stops, who sits in them? Biden, Sanders, Warren, maybe Harris, though she was damaged last night. More about whom in due course. Maybe, I mean, who's still in this? Who is still in this race? Who will be in the September debate? Well, it will be Biden, Sanders, Warren, for sure. There are three safe seats until it becomes a two-seat and then a one-seat proposition, right? But right now, the three seats of the four, maybe five, are taken up by the asses of Sanders, Biden, and Warren. If there are four seats, it was Harris up until last night, but more about whom again in a moment. I'm not sure Warren has that fourth seat anymore. What about Cory Booker? And again, what about the strange and somewhat wonderful tale of Tulsi Gabbard? All right. That will evolve. Biden was the winner by not being the loser. I think we're agreed. By the way, if you did not see it and you wonder where we are, I invite you to go back and look at the thread of our tweets from last night. It tells the entire story. I always do go back and review them. I'm very happy with what I've seen today. We had it nailed. We did in pre-analysis what others took agonizing hours to produce in analysis. Okay. Shame on me, department. I missed something last night. I missed something that to follow the media today, the coverage, is to think may be a significant event. And I missed it. I'm, oh, I admit to you, I missed it. I mean, there is a first time for everything on Earth. What I missed was I was too busy typing, corresponding. I mean, that's my excuse. It may be a cheap excuse. But I was, I was trying to multitask in order to do what I do during a live uh, you know, tweet coverage. And messages, and I kind of missed Tulsi's knifing of Kamala Harris. I saw it, it registered, but I didn't think that the damage was as great as the media seems to think. Now, I have a little bit of a demi theory about that, and that is since today the only real story is Biden's the leader, Biden won. Biden won by not losing, but nevertheless, you have to have a winner, you have to have a leader, you have to have a front runner. Biden's it. Well, you know what? This is where you tell what the difference between media people and political people like us. Political people want to talk about what is. What is. The media wants to talk about anything that's a story, anything new. Anything new is a story, and therefore, that's the news. So if you watched, and that's why I wait to post 
uh, our podcast. I don't wait out of sloth. I wait because I need to see, in order to understand what happened last night, I need to survey print, radio, and television, and web all day long in order to see if there's any consensus or what any remarkable observations might be. And the sense I get is that the media thought Biden won, even if by not losing, and that's boring. So they looked at what? They looked at the attacks, and the attack to which they are paying the most attention is Tulsi Gabbard's attack on Harris. She attacked Kamala Harris on her tenure as uh, the chief prosecutor, attorney general of the state of California. Some of those charges are pretty incendiary for, you know, real left-wingers. For instance, Kamala Harris kept people in jail longer than their sentences in order to look tough on crime. She only released a death row inmate after repeated orders by judges forced her to do so. She kept on inmates beyond their sentences uh, when they were eligible for parole in in order to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. I mean, if you're a liberal, this is fairly heavy stuff. If you're only a humanitarian, it gets your attention. So Tulsi knifed Harris, not in the back, but in the front. And that's what I think is the significance of this. Firstly, we have to ask, did the knife attack hurt Harris? The answer is yes. There is no doubt, listening to media today, that the knife that Tulsi plunged into Harris's front uh, did damage her. Harris has spent the day counterattacking through her campaign. And in a moment, I'll tell you, of all the most absurd and colorful and entertaining responses to someone who's been hit in a campaign, this one takes the cake. Well, well, let me just talk about that now. The response by uh, Tulsi Gabbard, I'm sorry, the response to Tulsi Gabbard by Kamala Harris's campaign overnight was, Tulsi Gabbard is backed by the Russians. The Russians are using their powers of computer to bollocks these debates and and, then these polls. And the Russians are trying to help Tulsi Gabbard against Harris. In fact, the Russians are trying to uh, live out a plan whereby Tulsi Gabbard will be a third-party candidate and run to split the Democrat vote and thereby re-elect Trump. This is for real. This is in the news today. This is something directly related, I'm sorry, directly connected to the Tulsi, I'm sorry, to the Kamala Harris campaign. The Kamala Harris campaign, people officially connected with it, are saying the Russians are working with Tulsi uh, to make her a third-party candidate to uh, to knock out Kamala Harris, and to re-elect Donald Trump. As you know, I have opined about 30 hours ago that I wish to be on record that if I were advising President Trump, I would say, Mr. President, keep in mind the following possibility. You ask Tulsi to leave the Democrat Party because 
It's not the party she fought in combat for. The Democrat Party has become a party that is not the party you risked your life for your country in combat for. That they are too radical, they don't relate to real people. And therefore, you're switching parties. And then you either, Mr. President, tap her to run for vice president, or you promise her and announce secretary of defense or something like that to get Tulsi on our side. And I have a warning to Democrats. Again, I predicted yesterday, way before anyone else in media or anywhere else was talking about this, that the Democrats despise Tulsi now. See, they see Tulsi as not one of their own exactly because Republicans, some Republicans like her, independents like her. And rather than put their arm around her and recognize what they've got and make her work for them, they are shutting her out. And they are unbelievably stupid for doing so. Now, I don't know the nature or volume of Tulsi Gabbard's ambition. But if she is ambitious, and I certainly don't mean that in a pejorative way, if Tulsi Gabbard wants to continue to fight for her country in her eyes and do so through the means of politics, Tulsi Gabbard will leave the Democrat Party in a highly choreographed major series of events whereby she renounces the radical liberality of the AOC wing of the party, claims that that's what it's become, which forces her to leave the party and do what? Run third party? It's possible, I've, but I, I really, really doubt that. But to leave the party and join the Republican Party, who better understands the people she thought she was fighting for, all of that, that's really tremendously possible. That is viable. So, note this, too. Note Bene. Tulsi's attack on Kamala Harris last night was not spontaneous. It is clear. It's clear to anyone who watched it. I mean, this is not some theory. It is abundantly clear that they were gunning. Tulsi was gunning for Kamala Harris. Now, you have to consider the content plus the strategy. Well, we've already talked about the content. Tulsi hit Harris at her most vulnerable point, and that is she bragged of being a law and order, tough-on-the-filthy-criminals candidate when she was running in California, which came at the expense of prison time and death sentences and all these things for mostly minority candidates. And when you wave that flag in a Democrat primary, you, you know, that's important. That hurts Harris. Tulsi hurt Harris last night. Tulsi hurt Harris. Harris went in as a presumptive uh, just below first order, second order last night. Tulsi and I'm sorry, uh, Kamala Harris went in last night as, you know, there's Joe Biden, there's Bernie Sanders, there's Elizabeth Warren, and then the next seat by all means belonged to Harris going in last night. A lot of people question that today, and that's because Tulsi Gabbard knifed her, not in the back, but in the front. It shows that Tulsi Gabbard has balls, although she needn't display that or demonstrate it because she's a decorated combat veteran. By the way, Tulsi Gabbard was the most Googled person in the last 24 hours. 
What does that tell you? Why were they gunning as a strategy? Why was Tulsi gunning for Harris? Because she must have some very good advisors and some very, very good pollsters that have figured out for her that you can get into, you can get on this stage and stay there, but you've got to knock somebody off. And the person that you are most likely to knock off is another woman. Her name is Kamala Harris. So despite the hysterical ravings of the Kamala Harris campaign today, that the Russians are running the Tulsi Gabbard campaign, and they've already set up a third-party candidacy so she could split the Democrat vote and re-elect Trump. And by the way, if that turned out to be true, I, I, I promise you I'll apologize while I'm while I'm applauding the Trump re-election. But again, it's obviously horseshit, but it shows you how much they feel wounded by Tulsi's criticism last night and how high these stakes are, and it's getting to Harris early. I actually heard a CNN commentator, one of their key commentators say today that a lot of people on the campaign trail with whom she, this Uh, CNN commentator has spoken a lot of people on the campaign trail are agree that they're detecting a whiff of entitlement about Kamala Harris that she thinks she's the smartest person on the stage the smartest person in the race and that she's getting really annoyed with these people she regards as gnats mosquitoes like Tulsi Gabbard and I'll tell you, um, you have one drop of that blood in the water, and here come the sharks. Okay, so that's what happened last night. Again, I'm not going to talk about the others, the the quote-unquote others, because last night, you, you know what happened. And what came out of night number one was Biden and Warren, and maybe somebody else. What came out of last night was... I'm sorry, I'm sorry, not Biden. What came out of night number one was Sanders and Warren and maybe somebody else. And what came out, came out of last night, the second debate, was Biden uh, and maybe Harris, maybe not anymore. Maybe Cory Booker, I don't know. But we're really, I think the polls will confirm what we're saying and feeling is that this is narrowing down to a poisonous musical chairs for some of them with maybe three or four seats about to be carved out. The, um, one of the points I wanted to make, too, I, I put in my notes here is, if you wanted to improve the debate, what would you do? Now, I've written about this and broadcasted about it. I don't believe I've ever potted about it. But I'm really, this is really a tasty morsel with which I hope to provoke you, either with uh, agreement or with, uh, you know, vigorous criticism. As long as we're thinking and arguing, we're okay. You know, an argument isn't a fight. That's why if, if I could get together with people who are about to be married and explain to them, no matter what else you decide to do, agree now that there is a distinction between fighting and arguing. Fighting is not good. Arguing is. A good argument 
I don't mean petty. I mean a good argument where each side has points that they make and you discuss it. Arguments are grand. Fights are bad. So in this argument, um, I'm supposing you ask me the question, all right, Jay, all right, big mouth, you know all about these debates. How would you improve them? If they suck so much, how would you improve them? Well, if you've held on this long in this podcast, you are most fortunate, my dear friend, because you're about to hear the uh, Severin corollary on debate improvement. And it's simply this. Imagine the debates you've seen recently. Imagine Tuesday night or last night if you saw them. Now, I want you to imagine one simple, not addition, I want you to imagine with me one simple subtraction. The audience. Eliminate the audience. We realize, don't we, that even though the broadcast is going out to millions of people, that they are human beings on that stage and they are playing to the audience, which is really terrible. And they are, what they say is affected directly by audience reaction or lack of same. Candidates who are from the planet Neptune and they finally get their chance to speak for 10 seconds, if they have enough people in the audience ready to go, woo, 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 that we say, I mean, the natural human reaction is to say, wow, people like that. People like him or her. And it's a completely bastardized process when you have an audience. The best televised debates ever held were held without audiences because the rhythms and the strategies of debates are not supposed to kowtow to the petty instant reaction you're going to get in a live audience, which live audiences are inevitably packed with the supporters of one candidate and the detractors of another. Consider the profound change and the equally profound improvement that the debates would enjoy, that we would enjoy as small-D Democrats, as people assessing our candidates and their ideas. Imagine if there was no bullshit audience, no bullshit audience reaction. It doesn't belong. I understand as a producer why someone came up with the idea originally and why it stuck because they wanted to sell it to advertisers. And as usual, this all comes back to what car companies, what soap companies, what soda companies can we find, what beer companies can we find that will pay to sponsor this so that it, it makes sense for us to put on in prime time. You know, that's all CNN cares about. They're losing X million dollars by televising this, so they have to fill in that gap. And ideally, they have to exceed it. Well, the soap and beer and car companies, beer companies, you've got to give them a product. And so that's why audiences were introduced. Imagine, imagine the 
Imagine the great battles in the Roman Colosseum, but without audiences. Now, I'm not suggesting that Spartacus et al. ought to have fought without audiences. I'm just asking you to consider for a moment what the difference would be. You know what? In that, probably nothing. I don't know that audiences swayed those things one way or the other, but they must have in some little way. But you put you put egghead stooges on a stage in a studio without an audience, and what you get is realpolitik. What you get is mano a mano or a womano. You get the real deal. And even if we have to do this slowly and for the first five years we phase it in, but the last few to several debates at least by the single two candidates, the final two candidates standing, one Republican, one Democrat, the last few to several debates they do ought to be without an audience. Yes? I mean, yes? Let's be sensible here. So that's how me, Big Mouth, would uh, improve the debate. What do you think? Now, before I leave you, evidence, further evidence, which I am regularly reporting with great reluctance, Further evidence on the fall of Rome. Number one, Al Sharpton emerged from a long period of well-deserved ridicule as an asshole and a race pimp, which is what he is, demonstrably. And this week he was lauded by the top people in the Democrat Party for his greatness as a civil rights leader. If you were alive when the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was, or if you have even a glancing familiarity with Dr. King, our Gandhi, to hear him, to see him mentioned in the same 10 weeks as Al, the fat bastard socialist race pimp Sharpton, is a very, very sad thing. And further evidence of the fall of Rome, that's number one. Number two, last night, Joe Biden came on the stage and he was overheard through the mics to say to Kamala Harris in the friendliest possible way. Now, mind you, at this point, Joe Biden was doing well because he came out and he didn't fondle Kamala's knockers nor did he grab her ass. So already Joe Biden is ahead of the game, usually for him. So he shook her hand, stayed a respectable distance away, and he said, hello, and then said, go easy on me, would you, kid? Which I think was kind of a splendid thing to say, a very sporting thing to say. I like to think I would have said something similar in a similar circumstance. And do you know that it only took a few moments after the end of last night's debate and all of today's news cycle, especially on the whack job channels like MSNBC, or Sean calls it MSDNC, and, uh, and CNN, the Clinton News Network, 
all day long. They would say, well, you know, Biden did okay, but he did F up uh, in a number of ways, starting with he called Kamala Harris kid. He insulted her by calling her kid. My dear co-respondents, if we live in an America in which walking onto a stage in public, shaking your opponent's hand and saying, go easy on me, would you, kid? If that is not seen, if that is no longer an acceptably familiar, affectionate, and utterly appropriate thing and sporting thing to say to your opponent, then, again, this is the fall of Rome. I, I must need to get out more because if that's an unacceptable thing to say, if that is a something-ist comment against Kamala Harris, then maybe I don't even realize how badly uh, things have gone. All right, I have some other juicy things for you. Uh, not related to the immediate news of last night, but rather looking ahead and things that are happening, the machinations of the campaign and of the White House each day, which we will get to, I believe, uh, depending on the news cycle and what happens in the next couple of days, uh, I'm looking at a podcast on polls and polling, uh, which will be a master class, not for master debaters, but a master class for master civics, samurai like me and you. And uh, also thinking a bit about talking about the mechanics of Trump's running the press operation. Just to preview it, you think it's a mistake, you think it's a coincidence that Donald Trump, when he has his presser every day, instead of having a press secretary at the White House speak for him, where is Donald Trump when you see him answering questions every day? He's on a line held back on the White House lawn with a helicopter, with a chopper, whirling its blade in the background. And he's kind of saying, okay, one more. I I can't hear you. The helicopter, one more. I don't know if this was the president's staging, his idea, his concept, but it's fucking brilliant. More about which next time we are together on the invasion of the giant pod pundit. I am the pud pundit. (laughs) I am at giant pod pundit. I am Jay Severin. You are the best and brightest. I am most grateful for your attentions. Until next time, Excelsior!